Spiritual deadness is what the scriptures teach us we are apart from our feelings, our memories, or our experiences. Ephesians chapter 2. Now, Ephesians chapter 2, as we say this regularly here, is that the chapter divisions are artificial. They are put there for our help to help us quickly, easily navigate through our scriptures, but they are not part of the scriptures, and sometimes they can create sort of an artificial break in thought, and we must be careful not to let that create a break in our thinking about what Paul's saying, because chapter 2 follows chapter 1 for a reason. Paul didn't write chapter 2 and then write chapter one and say, well, these two, let's put these together to save some paper. No, the, the thought that he's expressing in chapter one flows naturally into chapter two. Now, that was a good breaking point for us to just sort of catch our breath and let some of the profound truths from chapter one sink in a little bit. But at the same time, we must take a few minutes this morning to remind ourselves of the train of thought of what Paul has been developing through chapter one, because that will be fundamental for what he's got to say to us here in chapter two. So chapter one is the scripture's most exalted, most glorified, most extensive treatment of our blessings and privileges in Christ. Nowhere in scripture is it expounded to us with such detail, with such profound truth, of our blessings and privileges in Christ, of who we are in Jesus. Nowhere else is this given to us like it is in Ephesians chapter 1. So in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is piling on these great truths of our blessings in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption unto Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And on and on He goes with this blessings of adoption, blessings of predestination, of election, of forgiveness, of redemption, of sealing in the Spirit, blessings of our inheritance. He just expounds to us this incredibly complete and, and profound list of what we are in Christ and what God has done, the spiritual blessings that are ours now in Christ. And he continues that thought through verse 14. And then in verse 15 and 16, he pauses for just a second because he's praying this. This is all a prayer that he's lifting up to God on behalf of the Ephesians. And he pauses here in verses 15 and 16 to give us this little bit of information about how Paul knows that he's praying for true believers. He says, I'm praying for you, not because, not as though I'd pray for unbelievers, not as though I'd pray for the world. I'm praying for you because I know I'm praying for brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's how I know that. There's two ways I know that. One is I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And two, I've also heard of your love for one another. And so we talked about those two fundamental pillars of faith, of of life in Christ. Those are the two things that are non-negotiable for life in Christ to be ours. So the first is faith, and that goes without saying. You can't believe without having faith. But then we spent quite a bit of time talking about the love for the brethren. And Paul is saying to us here that those two things are the, the, the two central main reasons that Paul knows that these are believers in Christ and not just churchgoers. 
but they're true believers because of their faith and their love for each other. So we saw there that Paul is, is elevating love for the brethren to the status of being a non-negotiable, the defining characteristic of having life in Christ. And so we said, well, if that's true, then we should see that all over the New Testament. And we looked throughout our New Testament and we saw every single New Testament writer, every single book of the New Testament teaches that. That the fundamental, most basic, the most non-negotiable aspect of life in Christ, besides, of course, faith itself, is love for the brethren. And so upon looking at that, Paul then turns to this prayer, this, this request that he lifts up to God. He says, uh, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and your love for each other, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making my prayers to, and the praise to the Father and God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he has these three requests that he lifts up. Remember, the three requests are that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that you may know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that you may know the immeasurable power of the, his greatness working in you. So he prays that God would send the Spirit with this additional power to illumine their thoughts, to illumine their understanding of their blessings and privileges in Christ. So he talks about the, the hope that's there, the inheritance that's laid aside. We spent some time talking about our hope. We talked about the fruits of biblical hope. We talked about what biblical hope is. Remember, it's both the inheritance itself as well as the, the uh, assured confident, supernatural understanding that's buttressed by this, this patient waiting, as well as this expectation that, that this hope is ours, this supernatural work that God does in us. But it's also the inheritance itself. So we talked about that, but then Paul is praying that God would, would illumine their hearts to greater and greater degrees that they would understand this. So in that, we saw the primary central role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Once, generation occur, or once regeneration occurs in the heart and one is then a converted child of God, the fundamental, main, dominant role of the Holy Spirit is the work of illumination in our heart. That is how the Holy Spirit sanctifies us. That is how we become more like Christ. That is how we progress in our journey of discipleship. We don't become more like Christ because we develop more willpower. We don't become more like Christ because we volunteer for more things in the church. We don't become more like Christ because we give more to the church or because we come to church more often during the week. We become like Christ only by the Holy Spirit increasing our understanding of our blessings and our privileges in Christ. And by so doing, our love for Him is strengthened, our faith is strengthened, and our obedience is increased all as a result of our increased understanding of who we are in Christ. So we saw the flow of that chapter, how Paul introduces all these lofty concepts of your choosing uh, by God, of your forgiveness, of your redemption, all these, these blessings and privileges in Christ. But then Paul, it's like he pauses to say, and you can't really understand these unless the Spirit does that work. And so I pray and I ask God that the Spirit would do that work, that these things I've said to you, you would understand these things, not on a cognitive level, but on a spiritual level, on a heart level. And that's the flow of thought through the end of chapter 1. And that's what brings us here now to chapter 2. 
Now, as we come to chapter two, we said this a, a number of times in chapter one. Chapter one is basically one long sentence in the Greek, which is one reason that chapter one is a, a bit tedious and difficult to follow because the train of thought is such a long train. It's not a short train. It's a long train of thought. And so we had to work to follow Paul's train of thought through, chap- through chapter one because that's all one connected thought in the original. So now when we come to chapter two, we find, well, chapter two has two sentences in it. So the first sentence is going to take us down through verse seven. So obviously we're going to spend a number of weeks unpacking just the first sentence of chapter two. But as we come to chapter two, really what shines, I think, in chapter two is verses one through 10. Verses one through 10 has long been thought of by believers as some of the most well-loved and beautiful expression of salvation that the scriptures have for us. And so we're going to have a a rich time unpacking Paul's description of salvation in verses 1 through 10. But before he gets to verses 1 through 10, or at least before he gets to verses 7 through 10, he's got to do verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 are a summary of Romans chapter 1 through 3. So I know we're all familiar with the book of Romans. I know we've all read the book of Romans. Probably you've read it many times, I would hope. And if so, then you can relate to the difficulty of the book of Romans, particularly the first three chapters. Because the first three chapters, Paul is concerned exclusively with teaching of the total depravity of mankind. And so for three chapters, Paul is laying out this teaching of the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, And we can rightly think of Ephesians chapter two, verses one, two, and three as a three verse summary of all those three, of all three of those chapters. So the first three verses are going to be very weighty. We just finished up a weighty section of scripture as we're looking at Daniel's apocalyptic visions of the persecutions of God's people. And I mean, that, that weighed heavy on Daniel and he lost sleep and couldn't eat over that. So we were all probably thinking, That was good, but now let's get back to some good, uplifting, encouraging New Testament stuff. And then here we come to, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So we're not quite there yet, but verses 7 through 10 are going to be a beautiful exposition of the salvation that is ours. But as you'll see, we can't get there today until we explore verses 1 through 3. And there's a reason for that. There's a very good reason for that. So let's read together verses 1 through 10. And then as we do that, we're not going to get to any of this today, but as we do that, I want you to be looking for a few things. First of all, in verses 1 through 10, look for Paul's pronoun usage. Paul's going to do the pronoun thing again. Remember in chapter 1, we talked several times about Paul's purposeful, intentional mixing of his pronouns. So he mixes together the second person and, or the, uh, second person and the first person plural. He goes with the we, us, to you. And he goes back and forth. And we saw in chapter one that he's doing that for a purpose, for a reason. Well, that really ramps up in chapter two. He he does that throughout the book, but chapter two is where that really ramps up. We saw a purpose in chapter one, and we're going to see an even greater purpose in chapter two. So for right now, just look for that in these first 10 verses, this mixture of you and we. And think of what Paul might be communicating with the you's and the we's. Second of all, look for this unholy trinity. I hate to even use the word trinity here, but there's an unholy trinity 
in verses 1 through 3. Now, we know the God who has revealed himself to us in a trinity. And we also know that everything evil is a perversion of what's good. Everything evil is is a distortion of what's good. And so in in a similar way that we know the triune God, the, the God that is a trinity, there's also an unholy trinity in which we live. And that unholy trinity, you know what it is. It is the three influences upon us in this world. Our sinful heart, the world around us, and our enemy, Satan. So look for that, this threefold influence that's working against God's people. Look for that. Also look for the rulership that Paul says that the one part of that unholy trinity holds, the ruler of this age, the ruler of the air, so to speak. Look for that in these verses. And with that being said, again, all that's coming up. But for now, let's read through verses 1 through 10. Again, page 1159, if you're not with me. Beginning from verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So the scriptures speak to us about our condition apart from Christ and uses a number of different metaphors to speak to us of man's condition apart from Christ. It'll speak to us about our condition as being lost sheep. Isaiah 53, all all we like sheep have gone astray. Or of course, remember Luke 19, the shepherd that searches or uh, Jesus when he says, I've I've come to seek and to save the lost. So Scripture speaks to us of our condition apart from Christ as being like a sheep that is lost and cannot find its way home and must have the shepherd to come and find it and bring it home. Scripture also speaks to us in the metaphor of of sickness and the Scriptures will, will refer to us apart from Christ as being sick. Jesus said himself that he didn't come for the healthy, but he came for the sick. So the scriptures will speak to us as sin, our state of sinfulness as some type of sickness, some type of disease. We see this portrayed in the miracles of Jesus. Often the the cleansing of lepers is is a visual picture of that cleansing of the sickness of sin. We also see it as represented to us as disobedient rebels, that we are 
described as in the scriptures as rebels who have raised our fist against God and defied him and, and taken up arms against him. Paul says to the, in the letter to the Romans that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So we are rebels. We're also portrayed as corrupt trees. Jesus will include this teaching a number of times in the Gospels. The teaching about a tree that's good or a tree that's bad and how a good tree can only bring forth good fruit and a bad tree only bad fruit and, and you cannot make the fruit good or bad. You can make the tree good or bad, but not the fruit. So it's portrayed to us there as a corrupt tree or a good or a healthy tree. Those are some of the metaphors that Scripture presents to us about our condition apart from Christ. But Paul in this section chose none of those metaphors. Instead, he chose the starkest, the most shocking metaphor. Indeed, I would suggest it's not a metaphor. It's a reality. He speaks to us of our condition apart from Christ as death. And the shock of that is not something to be lost upon us, that he speaks to us of this condition apart from Christ as a condition of death. We remember, of course, from the beginning of our scriptures and the words of God to Adam, the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. And Adam and his wife, of course, eat of the tree. And on that day, they don't fall over dead physically. But on that day, they immediately die spiritually. So we know here, Paul's, Paul's not speaking of a physical death. He's not writing to a church that's made up of all people that, like Lazarus, died and were resurrected back to physical life. Clearly, he's writing to a church of people that were spiritually dead and have been raised to spiritual life, just as Adam, in the reverse of that, on that day that he ate of the fruit, he died spiritually and began a process of physical death that was a result of the spiritual death that he had just incurred. So this reality of the spiritual death is the metaphor that Paul wants to use in order to express to us the truths that he wants us to grasp before he gets to the second part of this when he talks those wonderfully beautiful and comforting words about being saved by grace through faith and not our own. We don't boast in this, but we were created for work. all those words there. Paul can't get to those words until he confronts us with this reality of who we were in Christ, who we were outside of Christ as we were dead. So as we look at this portion, let's begin with the first word here. And if you're with me in the ESV, I don't know about some other translations, but if you're with me in the ESV, then the first word that you see there is and, and that should be the same word that you see in all of them. So let's talk for just a minute about that word and and why that's there. And you're thinking, why in the world are we talking about and? Well, Paul began the sentence with the word and, and he did it for a reason. He did it to intentionally connect together what he's saying now to what he just said. So he wants the reader to know that what he's saying is not a new thought. What he's saying is something that he's building upon the thought that he just expressed. And we just went back through that, which is the thought, number one, of the grandeur, the majesty of our blessings and privileges in Christ, of what God has done for us and what God has made us in Christ. Secondly, the fact that the Spirit needs to communicate that to you in order for you to perceive it. And the process of growing in Christ is a process of increasing understanding 
of what God has done for you and what God has made, made you to be and what God has laid up for you. So now thirdly, on top of that, Paul then goes to increase the teaching or reinforce the teaching or clarify the teaching or just to use this expression to drive it home even further. He now goes to where you were before God did this. So you see his process of thought. The reason he goes here in chapter two, one verses one through three is to give you the before picture. You know, the whole before after picture thing. And you know how shocking that can sometimes be? These, these before after pictures, you can see them of, you know, a home remodel where this home is this dilapidated old uh, box of junk and is about to fall down. And then they come in and spend seven billion dollars you know, the same amount that you could have bought three houses for. And then the after pictures are like, wow, that's just incredible. Or the before and after pictures of, of some dramatic weight loss where you see this person who uh, is just really large and then there's this dramatic weight loss and there's the before and after pictures. Or, or maybe some, uh, uh, you've seen the pictures of, of those people that get like a face transplant. Maybe they're, uh, they've got a shotgun wound to the face or something like that, and they receive a transplant, and you see the before and after pictures, and you're like, wow, that is really incredible. That is what Paul is showing to us now, but he's not showing before-after pictures. He's showing after-before pictures. And this is why Paul is choosing this metaphor. But again, it's not a metaphor. It's reality. This is why Paul is zeroing in on spiritual death Because this is the description of us apart from Christ that will shine maximum glory upon Jesus. And that's been Paul's intention from chapter 1, verse 3, to shine maximum glory upon Jesus. And he can show maximum glory upon Jesus by, first of all, describing the realities of what God has done for us and then setting that in opposition to what we were before. It's almost like if I were to say, you know, such and such a person is just really deserving of respect. He, he has worked and he has amassed a fortune of $50 million. Well, that would mean two totally different things if I were to then say, and he started out with a fortune of $48 million. That would mean something very much different than if I said, and he started from nothing. He was born in a house with a dirt floor and he, had, he grew up with nothing and poverty and yet he has amassed $50 million. You would then have a different perception altogether of what the person had accomplished. And this is Paul's intention. You cannot grasp the glory of what God has given you in Christ without grasping what God in essence, started with, or to put it another way, where he began, where your your road of discipleship began. In order to understand to the fullest degree our blessings and privileges in Christ, it is necessary to also understand where God begins to impress upon us this richness of God's grace. He must begin from there. So he begins with this, this description of us apart from Christ as dead. And we describe this as a spiritual death, a spiritual deadness. So Paul here is at pains to to have this reality of spiritual death land upon our consciousness with great force. And here's how we see this. In our English translations, 
I know I'm reading from the ESV here. The, the verb here comes really the second word. You were, right? In the original, the subject of the sentence doesn't come until verse 4. And the verb of the sentence doesn't come until verse 5. The subject of the sentence is not you. The subject of the sentence is God. The verb of the sentence is made alive. That's the verb, the subject and the verb. God made alive. But look at what Paul says before he ever gets there. Look at how much he says before he ever even gets to the subject. Again, our English translations are trying to smooth this over for us by giving us a subject and a verb so that we don't have to, in our minds, have this long sentence that's seven verses long. But in reality, reality, what Paul wrote is three verses of Scripture before he ever got to the subject of God. Here's what he's saying. He wants this reality of your spiritual deadness to land so hard upon your thoughts and upon your consciousness and for it to just sit there in great discomfort while you wait for and God made alive. You see what he's doing there? He just wants this to be like a weight of bricks that comes down upon us. He's told us about the glory of of who we are in Christ. He's prayed that the Spirit would help us to see this and understand this to greater levels. And then he hits us with with this before picture. And he puts the before picture out there and he repeats it several times and he leaves it there for you to wrestle with before he says, and God made alive. Now the King James here, distorts it the most of all. The King James does the worst job of anybody. I'm sure there's some King Jameses here. And look at what the King James does. The King James takes that subject and verb and moves it all the way up to verse 1. You see that? And the only reason for that is to, to do directly what Paul was not wanting to do. Paul was wanting that reality to hit you and stay there, dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the prince of the power of the air, following the ruler of this world, pursuing your passions, pursuing your worldly pleasures. That's what you were. And God made alive together with Christ. You see how that just counteracts what Paul's doing to say, and you were dead, but God made you alive. Paul wants that to rest on your thoughts. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Truth That Transforms with pastor and Bible teacher Jason Wilkerson. Truth That Transforms is the daily teaching broadcast of Disciples Fellowship Church. We invite you to visit our website where you will find more resources to help in your journey of discipleship. You can find us at www.disciplesfellowshipnc.com or connect with our Facebook page at Facebook slash Disciples Fellowship NC. Truth That Transforms exists to glorify Jesus Christ through the teaching of His sanctifying and disciple-making Word.